Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, just two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that plus members-only bonus content with extra clips and commentary. We are in particular need of new members right now, so if you have a few dollars a month available to help us produce this show, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn so much. Honestly, uh, this is a bit of an extended episode, and I do this every once in a while, and I I end up sort of kicking myself at the end of the day because I, I, I sort of agonize over which bits to cut to get this huge pile of clips all the way down to the length of a show, you know, about an hour or so. And sometimes I get down to where it's just a little over an hour and I think I got to cut just a little bit more, but I don't know what because it's all so good. And of course, I'm sure what you're thinking is, well, if it's so good, don't cut it. I want to hear it. Whatever it is, you say it's good. I want to hear. And uh, and the fact is, of course, an hour is a fairly arbitrary uh, length of time. And so every once in a while I say, okay, you know what? Screw it. I'm not going to cut it. It is all too good. And we're going a little long. So today we're going to learn about, you know, of course, the El Paso and Dayton shootings in general, their relationship to white supremacy and misogyny, uh, what the Republicans have been saying instead of trying to do anything that would be helpful, what Democrats should be proposing that goes far beyond the same old suggestions we've been floating for 20 years. The fact that many of these so-called solutions to gun violence really just mean giving up even more of our rights for the sake of security and living in a police state. The wrong-headedness of focusing only on mental health. The internet underbelly that fosters the right-wing, hateful, misogynistic men's groups that actually applaud these kinds of mass shootings. And how at the core, these shooters and the white men who propagate the ideas that drive them are not, you know, these are not people bravely standing up to protect their country or anything like it. On the contrary, these shootings are driven by fear, not fear of any real danger, but fear of losing the unearned power and privilege these men currently enjoy. So with all that, I mean, what, what of that would you cut? Hopefully nothing. It's all going to be fantastic. So clips today come from Democracy Now!, In the Thick, The Bradcast, The Takeaway, All In With Chris Hayes, Doomed With Matt Bender, and Let's Talk Native. Enjoy. It was a deadly weekend in America. Over the span of 13 hours, the country was rocked by two mass shootings. 
At around 10.30 Saturday morning, a heavily armed gunman opened fire inside a crowded Walmart in El Paso, Texas. Authorities say 20 people were shot dead. The victims were predominantly Latino, including seven Mexican nationals. At least two dozen people were injured. Then just after 1 a.m. on Sunday, a gunman in Dayton, Ohio, shot dead nine people outside a bar in the city's historic Oregon district. The dead included the gunman's own sister. Most of the dead were African-Americans. Police are still investigating the motive of the Dayton gunman, a white male named Connor Betts. According to news reports, the 24-year-old had been suspended from high school after compiling lists of girls he wanted to rape and kill. Meanwhile, federal authorities are treating the El Paso attack as an act of domestic terrorism. The suspected El Paso gunman has been identified as 21-year-old white male named Patrick Crucius, who lives 600 miles away in a suburb of Dallas. Shortly before the attack in El Paso, the gunman posted an anti-immigrant manifesto on the far-right message board 8chan, which had also been used by the gunman who attacked two mosques in New Zealand and killed 50 Muslims, and the gunman who attacked a San Diego synagogue. On Sunday, the founder of 8chan called for the site to be taken down. Some of the language in the manifesto echoed remarks by President Trump, including his use of the word invasion to describe immigrants crossing the southern border. On Sunday, President Trump briefly spoke about the shootings in El Paso and Dayton, but did not refer to guns, domestic terrorism, or white nationalism or supremacy in his remarks. President Trump is scheduled to address the nation today at 10 a.m. On the presidential campaign trail, a number of Democratic candidates linked the shooting in El Paso to Trump's anti-immigrant rhetoric. Former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who is from El Paso, accused Trump of stoking racism. South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg said Trump is not helping to stop what he described as a, quote, lethal, violent, white nationalist terrorism. Meanwhile, Senator Bernie Sanders called on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to hold a special session of the Senate to pass a gun safety bill. The El Paso attack came just days after a white male shooter attacked the Gilroy Garlic Festival in in Northern California, killing three people. The gunman in Gilroy promoted an anti-immigrant manifesto online just hours before the shooting. According to The New York Times, white extremist shooters have killed at least 63 people in the United States over the past 18 months. We go now to El Paso, where we're joined by two guests. Cesar Blanco is a Democratic member of the Texas House of Representatives. Fernando Garcia is the founding director of the Border Network for Human Rights and advocacy group based in El Paso. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! First of all, condolences on the horror that has taken place uh, in your community in El Paso. Do you believe that Latinos were targeted? I mean, clearly in this so-called manifesto, I mean, right before the gunman opened fire at the Walmart in El Paso, he <clears throat> posted this anti-immigrant screed, apparently um, attributed to him, uh, appeared online. The manifesto is titled, The Inconvenient Truth About Me. 
It reads in part, quote, I support the Christchurch shooter and his manifesto. This attack is a response to the Hispanic invasion of Texas. They are the instigators, not me. I am simply defending my country from cultural and ethnic replacement brought on by an invasion. Hispanics will take control of the local and state government of my beloved Texas, changing policy to better suit their needs. They will turn Texas into an instrument of a political coup, which will hasten the destruction of our country. The manifesto read. It also cites the great replacement theory, the white nationalist right wing conspiracy theory, which was also evoked during the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville in Virginia in 2017, when the neo-Nazis chanted Jules will not replace us. The author of the El Paso manifesto claims his views, quote, predate Trump and his campaign. But the manifesto borrows a number of Trump's popular slogans, including send them back and fake news, which Trump also repeated fake news. Trump did not refer to the Latinos who were killed, who were targeted. He said today's he tweeted very little and spoke little this weekend about El Paso and Dayton, but did tweet today's shooting in El Paso, Texas, was not only tragic, it was an act of cowardice. I know that I stand with everyone in this country to condemn today's hateful act. There are no reasons or excuses that will ever justify killing innocent people. Do you, like Beto O'Rourke and uh, Senator Sanders and others, believe that Trump is partially responsible for what took place. Let me put that question. I mean, listen, uh, El Paso. Yes, yes. Uh, let, let me tell you that what we saw was an attack against a symbol. El Paso has become a symbol of resistance to all of what Trump represents. Every strategy that he implemented at the border started in El Paso. And our community reacted, and our community resisted. The separation of children, uh, returning refugees to Mexico, children dying in our uh, in border patrol stations and ICE stations. So our our community uh, has shown uh, resilience to this aggressive anti-immigrant agenda of this president. But also our community has welcomed refugees. We had opened our homes, our city, to refugees and immigrants, and uh, in 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 the sense that we were punished because of that. We need to call it what it is. You know, f a few months ago, we had the white supremacist militias coming down to El Paso region. At, a, at that time, we talked to them and we engaged with them. And they were and what they were saying at that time is that they were responding to Trump's call to action to come to the border to protect the border from the invasion of criminals. Obviously, they were referring to uh, children and refugees and mothers. So we need to call this what it is. This was the result of Trump's racist agenda, Trump's hate towards Mexicans and immigrants. I mean, we, we cannot call it any other way. And, and, and I believe that Trump is very cynical today that, that, uh, that this, this, he's calling this shooting uh, or his labeling uh, has uh, the shooting has a mental health issue. It is not true. Once again, he needs to accept responsibility what what he has done. Words matter. And today, Trump's words killed El Pasoans.
So for people who don't know, El Paso is over 80% Latinx and and it's really a bicultural community right. um, because it's a community of people who are international. They go back and forth on a border. Um, so this is really an attack on a borderland. Yep. And that means that it's impacted two countries. It's impacted Mexico and it's impacted the United States. And, you know, I mean, I've been to El Paso so many times in my life and there is just this tremendous amount of community love in El Paso. Right. So. Bob, what can you tell us about the victims? And and what can you tell us about kind of how your community is as difficult as it is to put into words? I, I'm glad you mentioned the, the bicultural nature of our community. I would also add it, it's a it's a binational community because you can't separate El Paso and, and Ciudad Juarez. Uh, yeah. uh, there's a river that runs between us. Uh, I prefer to think that the border joins us rather than divides us. Hmm. At least seven of the people who were murdered were from Mexico. They had come on uh, a Saturday morning to shop. Mexican shoppers are uh, a huge part of the economy of El Paso, and they're our neighbors just as much as as El Pasoans are. So we grieve their loss. Um, We've had a number of families in, in El Paso touched by this. We know at least one child uh, was orphaned because his parents were murdered oh as his mother held him. Oh, I'm so sorry, Bob. Oh, my God. Uh, the mother <sighs> used her body to shield the baby uh, and lost her life. And then a few hours later, they found out uh, that the father had also perished in, in this attack. Uh, we know that uh, at least one little boy died. Uh, uh, for no other reason than uh, he, the color of his skin. Uh, Jesus. Uh, this is uh, just unimaginable. And, you know, we I think we've become numb to mass shootings uh, in, in this country, tragically. Th- this is a different form, though. Yeah. This was a person who drove 10 hours to come to this beautiful community so that he could murder people because of their nationality, uh, uh, because of who their parents are. Uh, this is just uh, beyond sickening. Uh, and I, I wish I could say I was surprised by it. Yeah. Uh, but the truth is El Paso has literally had a bullseye placed on it uh, for the mm. last two years by this administration. Mm. And, and we can't mm. feign Correct. surprise Correct. that... <sighs> when the president talks about an invasion that someone didn't take it upon himself to react the way you're supposed to with real invasions, you repel it. Yeah. So Bob, I'm I'm sorry, but I think what you're saying, because a lot of people are talking about president Trump and his rhetoric about specifically immigrants, Mexicans, you know, the invaders, you're saying specifically that you're, it seems to me that you're holding this president accountable for the fact that he has, in fact, talked about El Paso. Right. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I mean, do I think that Donald Trump wished that people in El Paso would be killed? No, I I don't don't believe that at all. But he has upped his rhetoric. And it's not just with with Latinos, it's Muslims, it's, it's whoever may be different or whoever may not sing his praises enough. 
But certainly from the moment he came down that escalator in Trump Tower in 2015 to announce his candidacy and to describe Mexicans as rapists and criminals, it's clear that his language has dehumanized the people of this community and the people of Mexico and and so many other people. And when you dehumanize people, when you refer to invasions and infestations, you can't sit back and say, oh, I didn't know that people were going to act upon those words. That's that's just incredibly naive. Bob, it's it's good that you bring this up. Um, I wrote a piece for NBC News this week that basically traced the history of, of the word invasion, especially in White House statements, in press remarks. I mean, it's all there. It's and, you know, the White House has become a repository of this language and it's official. It's become official government language, words like invaded and invasion. And we know about the manifesto. And then there was this from 2020 presidential candidate and El Pasoan Beto O'Rourke when he was asked by a reporter about the impact of dehumanization by Trump. Just briefly, sir, can I just ask, is there anything in your mind that the president can do now to make this any better? Uh, what do you think? Um, you know the shit he's been saying? He's, he's been calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals. Um, I, I don't know, like, members of the press, what the fuck? Hold on a second. You know, I, 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 it's, it's, these, um, it's these questions that you know the answers to. I mean, connect the dots about what he's been doing in this country. Um, he's not tolerating racism. He's promoting racism. He's not tolerating violence. He's inciting racism and violence in this country. So, um, you know, I, I just, I, I don't know what kind of question that is. He's made, he's made. So first, it's important to understand that, that Beto was coming from uh, a vigil, uh, a very emotional vigil to, right. to honor those who had been killed. Right. What you're hearing from Beto O'Rourke, uh, the anguish uh, in his voice and the frustration, you're hearing from El Pasoans uh, from every walk of life. When, when you talk to Veronica Escobar, the congresswoman from this region, you hear the same anguish and anger uh, uh, in, in her voice. When you talk to priests, uh, when you talk to hairdressers, it really doesn't matter that that anguish and anger uh, is there because our community was targeted. The, the, the anger, but in a very dignified way that you hear from the leaders in El Paso, reflects the sentiment of the people. The first reaction on, on Saturday morning, of course, was shock. But that changed overnight, I think, Saturday into Sunday morning when it became very evident that this wasn't just another mass shooting. This was somebody who targeted our community. And people should be angry about that. If, you, if you're not angry or if you don't understand the anger that's coming from El Paso, I probably can't have a conversation with you. Uh, uh, our neighbors were murdered. Um, uh, solely because of their heritage. Uh, uh, and, and we've seen this as a community coming for two years. This is also a community, it's important to understand, that has been the focal point of a lot of the president's border policies. Family separation started here. Uh, uh, right now, uh, El Paso and Juarez are the centerpiece of the administration's Remain in Mexico program, where we're sending asylum seekers back. Yeah. To, to very dangerous conditions. In my community in March, I saw people who were forced to sleep under a bridge simply because they had come to this country uh, wow. to seek asylum and our government couldn't find a way 
to handle them. I have, in the last couple of months, written stories about the autopsy reports of four children who died uh, in our government custody. Wow. Mm. Yeah. All of this is a piece of the same thing. This this shooting is related to all of that. You were talking about how, you know, this is official policy and official rhetoric. These these are all official policies. These are actions by our government in our names that is inflecting tremendous misery and suffering here. And, And we can have a conversation about immigration and about border enforcement. Right, right. But we have to understand that these are human lives that that are being touched by this. And I think that's what's gotten lost in so much of the rhetoric and why it's so easy for a man who lives north of Dallas to grab his AK-47 and drive to El Paso because they're not seen as human beings. And I think that's something that we just absolutely have to change if we're going to put a stop to this. Today's episode is sponsored by Babbel, the language learning app that will get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. They have 14 different languages to choose from, and their teaching methods have been proven to be effective across multiple studies. And I think the users agree. The Babbel app has nearly 40,000 reviews, averaging 4.6 out of 5 just on the iOS app store alone. And Babbel has been helping me in my very limited spare time to learn some Spanish. Uh, To be honest, uh, mi español no es bueno, but I am steadily improving. Uh, For instance, right now I am... I'm, you know, I'm still new, so I can hardly conjugate my way out of a paper bag, but I can practice as much as I need with Babbel. And the best thing is that there's never any judgment or exasperation from Babbel when I can't remember Somos. You know, it's the one that always gets me. So try it yourself. Judgment-free, Babbel is available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across all devices. All it takes is a few easy steps to get started. Go to babbel.com or download the app, select the language of your choice, and try it for free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. On Sunday, 24 hours after the mass shooting by the white nationalist in El Paso, the president of the United States, after tweeting the usual thoughts and prayers a day earlier, finally weighed in with comments to the media on the two mass shootings. He said, we've done actually a lot, though he didn't specify what he had done before conceding, quote, perhaps more has to be done. The president, who has regularly used incendiary racist language and outright calls for violence at rallies of his across the country, added, quote, hate has no place in our country and we're going to take care of it. In Texas, some Republican politicians, unlike the president of the United States, were able to cobble together words that at least somewhat reflected the reality of the situation. Somewhat. Texas Land Commissioner George P. Bush Nephew of former President George W. Bush issued a statement Saturday denouncing the uh, El Paso attack and declaring that, quote, all terrorism must be stopped. He tweeted, quote, I believe fighting terrorism remains a national priority, and that should include standing firm against white terrorism here in the U.S. 
Senator Ted Cruz of Texas pointed to his own heritage as the son of a Cuban immigrant and described himself as, quote, deeply horrified by the hateful anti-Hispanic bigotry contained in that manifesto that investigators believe was posted online by the suspect uh, in El Paso. Cruz said in a tweet, quote, what we saw yesterday was a heinous act of terrorism and white supremacy. Nonetheless, Cruz, uh, reflecting that cowardice that Trump ascribed to the El Paso shooter, provided no suggestions for steps that Congress might take to prevent such preventable shootings in the future. Ohio's Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown wrote in a tweet Sunday that thoughts and prayers are not enough. We have a responsibility to act, he said. We are also angry, angry that after shooting, after shooting, politicians in Washington and Columbus refused to pass sensible gun safety laws to protect our communities. I hope that Senator Mitch McConnell would bring the Senate back tomorrow and pass the background check bill and send it to the president. The president must sign it, period, Brown told CNN's Jake Tapper on State of the Union, where Republican officials from Ohio had refused to appear. Brown's call Sunday adds to a growing chorus of Democratic and progressive lawmakers who have demanded action on gun reform in the aftermath of a tragedy. Brown told Tapper... The House of Representatives has passed background check legislation. The the Senate could meet tomorrow. McConnell, however, has not called lawmakers back from recess for an emergency session, but did tweet on Saturday that the entire nation is horrified by today's senseless violence, adding Elaine's and my prayers go out to the victims of this terrible violence and the brave first responders who charged into harm's way. He did not note that those brave first responders were forced to charge into the way of a homegrown white nationalist domestic terrorist with a legally purchased military-style assault rifle. A number of other lawmakers joined Brown's call on Sunday for McConnell to act on gun control legislation, including Ohio's conservative Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan, also a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate. Ryan told Fox News on Sunday that we have got to ban these assault weapons. In a statement, Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said the Republican Senate must stop their outrageous obstruction and join the House to put an end to the horror and bloodshed that gun violence inflicts every day in America. Enough is enough, she said. And Democratic Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer tweeted the major- that uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell must, quote, must call the Senate back for an emergency session to put the House passed universal background checks legislation on the Senate floor for debate and vote immediately. Mind you, the universal background checks legislation is about the lowest hanging fruit you could possibly pass at this point. Other presidential candidates rang in as well. Senator Amy Klobuchar, a Minnesota Democrat, wrote in a tweet Sunday that she is ready to go back tomorrow to take legislative action. Inaction, she said, is unacceptable. The time for passing legislation is now. Congress has not passed legislation limiting semi-automatic weapons since 1994, when lawmakers passed the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, making it unlawful in most cases to make, transfer, or possess semi-automatic assault weapons. Yes, that was actually the law of the land for about a decade. 
until it expired in 2004, and Republicans and George W. Bush refused to renew it that year or since. On a state level, just nine states and the District of Columbia ban large-capacity ammunition magazines. The laws vary from state to state and define the magazines as holding 10 or 15 rounds. Again, the shooter in Dayton had one purchased legally that held 100 rounds as Ohio is one of many GOP-controlled states that refuse to take action against such devices, presumably because, you know, hunters need a magazine with a 100 rounds that can be discharged within seconds to kill ducks and deer, I guess. Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley said Sunday that officers killed the lone suspect in, uh, in the Dayton shooting after he fired for less than a minute, and he had additional mag- magazines with him, all perfectly legal in the Buckeye State, when he killed those nine victims. So in recent days, there's been talk that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and President Trump may be open to some sort of compromise legislation with Democrats on issues related to gun violence. We've heard things like red flag laws or expanded background checks being discussed, but some argue that these laws don't go far enough and that Democrats should be offering much bolder solutions and policies. Herman Lopez is a senior correspondent at Vox, and he joins me now. Herman, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you wrote a piece recently. The title was Democrats have been discussing the same ideas on guns for 25 years. It's time to change that. So tell us what you meant by that, what that would look like. Sure. So if you look at the history here in 1993 and 1994, Democrats and some Republicans passed essentially background checks and an assault weapons ban. And in the 25 years since, that's pretty much the, what the conversation has stuck to this entire time. It's now universal background checks and an assault weapons ban. And that's to me, just signifies that there hasn't been much progress on this issue when you compare it to like what Democrats have done on single pair or the Green New Deal or taxes on the wealthy and so on and so forth. These are places where they've noticeably shifted. But on guns, it's pretty much been the same thing, just background checks and an assault weapons ban for the last 25 years. And why do you think that is? I think the the biggest thing is just it it was seen as like politically difficult. There was a huge political backlash back in 94 when when they did pass the the assault weapons ban in particular. And Democrats since then, even as I think there's been noticeable shifts on this issue publicly and politically, they've just been scared of that kind of political backlash happening again, particularly in like some of the, the swing states and rural places. Now, though, you do have a number of Democratic candidates who are taking positions that go much farther than just background checks. There's been talk about issues like gun licensing, for example. So can you walk us through the 2020 candidates? Who's who's proposing sort of the the, the most progressive to folks who are are not? Right. So I think there's there's essentially two different sides here. One is the, the more moderate side, which is still focused on assault weapons bans and background checks. And that includes uh, Joe Biden, Michael Bennett. Those are the 2020 candidates generally on that side. And then the other side is mostly this licensing side. So these are people who believe that they, they usually use the comparison of like a driver's license. Just as you need a driver's license to drive a car, you should have a license to buy and own a gun. And this has really been led forward by Cory Booker. He, he made probably the most ambitious proposal along these lines. But other there have been other a few other Democrats have come on board, such as Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, 
and Andrew Yang as well. So there's been some movement in that area. And it, it is a significant place where if you look at the research, licensing is actually more effective than just background checks or assault weapons bans. So that is not only a, a place where the politics have shifted, but where it could help people. Though there will be plenty of folks who say to Democrats, even people who are Democrats, Democratic strategists who will say the term gun licensing in a place like a Michigan or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, states that Democrats need to win in 2020, will be politically damaging, that voters in those states hear gun licensing and they they hear the term gun licensing and they think of confiscation or they're going to come and you know, take our guns uh, away from us. How can Democrats propose something sweeping like that while also being able to hold those important swing states? Yeah, I think this is like what's known as the quote unquote intensity gap. Essentially, the idea is like if you think of the NRA member, he is much more likely to vote on just this issue of guns than a Democrat who might support stronger gun control, might support licensing. Um, But in the end, that same Democrat will probably also have like climate change in mind, the economy in mind, whereas that NRA member, guns are the issue that they will vote on. So what Democrats have to do, and there's been some movement, I think, in this direction with the Parkland movement, with all these mass shootings, they just have to start caring about guns more and being more willing, essentially, to say, hey, this is an issue we're prioritizing. We will be the counterweight to the NRA on this issue if necessary. Um, and we've seen some movement in that direction. We have the in the debates, the first debates when Democrats were polled about this, gun violence was one of the top two issues for them. Do you think you had also written and talked about Democrats really being more forceful on the issue of the Second Amendment itself. What would that look like? There was a long campaign by the NRA for the past few decades to really get us to see the Second Amendment as an individual right, protecting an individual right. I think it's been pretty successful. Most Americans agree that that then Second Amendment does protect an individual right. But there could be a, a movement in the other direction suggesting that, no, this is actually a collective right, that it says well-regulated in the Second Amendment. That does mean regulations. It might mean that, like, if outside of the context of a militia, which is how the Second Amendment was written, then maybe there isn't an individual right to own a gun. This is, like, a pretty radical proposal. Most Democrats are not on board with with it. But if the NRA was successful in changing people's minds about how to view the Second Amendment and people want something really big done on guns, then it makes sense that they would try to do a campaign essentially in the reverse to change people's minds about what the Second Amendment means. Legislatively, though, the polling doesn't seem to be able to match up with the reality, right, that you have an overwhelming majority of people say even just basics like background checks they support, it can't get through Congress. What do you say to folks who think, well, maybe we should just first try to get these small things through Congress before we push for something bolder? Or do you think if you don't go bold, you're never going to get anything? That, I think that's a big concern, just as with like healthcare and the Green New Deal and whatnot. These incremental proposals would help. But at some point, the Democratic Party has to have a bigger vision on where it wants to go on guns. And do you see that happening in 2020? Or do you think it's going to happen post this election? I think it could start in 2020. I mean, in 2016 is when we started really talking about like single payer health care in the U.S. Thanks to Bernie Sanders campaign. We could start moving in that direction in 2020. By, by the end of this uh, 2020 cycle, we'll have more options potentially. Yeah. If Democrats take Congress and if they take the White House and make progress on this issue, they, they could have some ways to go. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. It was founded in 2013, and since then, hundreds of thousands of women have tried and loved Madison Reed for the way they revolutionized at-home hair color. Amy Errett founded the company and named it after her daughter because the status quo of hair color options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. With beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color, you'll look like you just came from the salon, but you'll have saved a whole lot of time and money because Madison Reed color kits are delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. To get started, find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of the Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com, and use the promo code LEFT. President Trump spent the day shuttling between the sites of the two latest gun massacres in America and hurling juvenile insights, insults at his political opponents while in transit from one to the other. After a stop in Dayton, Trump then visited El Paso, Texas, where the shooter expressed his explicit intent to target and kill Hispanics to stop what he called an invasion, echoing the exact same word the president himself has used repeatedly. This afternoon, Democratic presidential frontrunner Vice President Joe Biden gave a speech in which he pointed out the insidious double game the president likes to play. It's both clear language and in code. This president has fanned the flames of white supremacy in this nation. His low energy, vacant eyed mouthing of the words written for him, condemning white supremacists this week, I don't believe fooled anyone. It's not just the president who spews hate and racist fear-mongering without dealing with the consequences. It's Trump TV as well, specifically Tucker Carlson, doing the exact same thing, though admittedly with a defter touch, night after night after night. How precisely is diversity our strength? Ilhan Omar is living proof that the way we practice immigration has become dangerous to this country. Mexico has helped its citizens to break our federal laws. It's done that for years. That's what it looks like when a hostile foreign power interferes in your democracy. They don't buy Facebook ads that nobody sees. Why would they? They try to change the demographics of your country. What about us? What about our country? We're being invaded. It's going to overwhelm our country and change it completely and forever. And our our viewers should know that. It's not at all surprising that Carlson finds a very receptive audience among people like, for instance, the neo-Nazi website, The Daily Stormer, whose founder, Carl Carson, literally our greatest ally. He earns the praise of former KKK leader David Duke, who tweeted just today, Tucker is right. White supremacy is a Zio media conspiracy theory. Tucker Carlson tells his overwhelmingly white audience the country is theirs. Diversity is a threat. Immigrants are invading and then turns to say with a straight face, white supremacy. What white supremacy? If you were to assemble a list, a hierarchy of concerns of problems this country faces, where would white supremacy be on the list? Right up there with Russia, probably. It's actually not a real problem in America. The combined membership of every white supremacist organization in this country would be able to fit inside a college football stadium. 
Carlson, like the president that he apologizes for, knows what he's doing. In this case, it's a clumsy little bait and switch in which he argues the only problem is a relatively small number of people that are members of a white supremacist organization. But as far as we know, the killer in El Paso was a member of an organization and the killer at the Pittsburgh synagogue wasn't a member of an organization. And the people throughout this country who get up in the faces of immigrants and people of color and scream at them to go back to their country, who berate people in gas stations because they're speaking Spanish, those people aren't members of organizations. The problem isn't white supremacists as some distinct category that only includes David Duke. It is the ideology to which the president and Tucker Carlson himself subscribe, which is that those people don't belong in this country, that it's not theirs, that diversity is a threat, that white people are being replaced. Now, I should say, in Carlson's defense, it's not an act. He really believes these things. If you want a textbook definition of what overt white supremacy looks like, it's this. How could you salvage Iraq at this point? I don't, you know, it's beyond our control. I mean, if somehow the Iraqis decided to behave like human beings or something. Iraq is a crappy place filled with a bunch of, you know, semi-literate primitive monkeys. But I just have zero sympathy for them or their culture, a culture where people just don't use toilet paper or forks. Yeah, sub-literate primitive monkeys. It's not people with swastika tattoos or white hoods that are the problem. It's the belief system that this is a country for white people and that white people are better than non-white people. An act of violence, of mass murder in support of that ideology, like the massacre in El Paso, creates real waves of fear throughout the country, far surpassing the one person who did it. In the wake of this, people are coming forward with their stories of harassment and intimidation and fear that is flowing from this racist ideology. One Latina immigrant telling the New York Times, it feels like being hunted. It's the ideology that is being pumped into the minds of the viewers of that show on Trump TV every night. That was a scene last night just before 10 p.m. in Times Square, New York City. Mass panic in a crowded public space when people thought they heard gunshots and started running. Turned out it was just a motorbike backfiring. This is now a feature of American life. The haunting thought in the back of one's head while in a public space. The kinds of mass shootings we've seen in El Paso and Dayton are now grim, ritualized parts of American society. Same goes for mass shootings like the one in Brownsville, Brooklyn, where one person was killed and 11 injured on July 27th. Now, those don't get as much attention, but they terrify people just as much. They leave just as much trauma and grief and mayhem. And here's what is so perverse. The very fear created by gruesome public displays of gun violence often serve to advance the interests of gun manufacturers. There's evidence that gun sales rise after mass shootings. I saw this firsthand in the wake of the mass shooting in San Bernardino in 2015 when we wanted to talk to a gun shop owner the day after the shooting. How's business been? Uh, normally, the business uh, increases after things of this nature. Really? Uh, people, you know... My phone's been ringing off the hook this morning about handgun purchases and things of that nature. What's more, the public fear these mass shootings precipitate can be clay in the hands of demagogues, as Donald Trump himself demonstrated after San Bernardino when he said this. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on? And when the NRA and politicians called for arming teachers after Parkland, and when Sean Hannity called for a dystopic militarized panopticon to be erected around every school in the country after this week's massacres. 
I'd like to see the perimeter of every school in America surrounded, secured by retired police, which you are, retired Secret Service, which you are, military, have one armed guard on every floor of every school, all over every mall, the perimeter and inside every hall of every mall. Schools across the country now routinely subject children as young as four to lockdown drills, where we collectively traumatize an entire generation. It's sheer madness. If our society continues to commit itself so strenuously to the sacred principle of easy access to guns, then the climate fear of fear that mass shootings create will be channeled to ever more draconian impingements on other liberties. The guns stay, but we want the state to guard every school like a garrison, monitor every chat board, involuntarily commit those with mental health problems, and on and on and on. I've watched what collectivized fear has done to law and policy in the post-9-11 era when, again, people had good reason to be scared. There's much in that record that serves as a cautionary tale. So the challenge for us as a culture and citizens and political leaders and those in the media as we choose how and when to cover these incidents is how to be clear-eyed to the threat posed by gun violence and white supremacist extremist violence and the dark nihilistic spree shooters without succumbing to the very sense of fear and paranoia and panic they seek to impose. After two horrific mass shootings over the weekend, President Trump blamed mental illness for the violence. We must reform our mental health laws to better identify mentally disturbed individuals who may commit acts of violence and make sure those people not only get treatment, but when necessary, involuntary confinement. Mental illness and hatred pulls the trigger, not the gun. This was not the first time the president has made that link. So far, he's blamed at least nine high-profile mass shootings on mental illness. We have a lot of mental health problems in our country, as do other countries. The difficult issue of mental health. I think that uh, mental health is your problem here. On Monday, the American Psychological Association released a statement responding to the president's remarks, saying the overwhelming majority of people with mental illness are not violent and that, quote, A history of violence is the single best predictor of who will commit future violence. And access to more guns and deadlier guns means more lives lost. Additional research from the University of Texas Medical Branch shows that mental health is not a major factor in someone's propensity for gun violence. But the University of Texas found that the more access someone had to guns, the more likely they were to commit acts of violence with them. Politicians, especially those from the GOP, have continued to link mass shootings to mental illness, especially when the perpetrator is white. There's some pretty sick kids out there, and I think we got to do a better job of mental health. It seems like one common denominator is mental illness. There's mental health and addiction issues. We don't know right now exactly why this deranged individual did this. People with mental illness are getting guns and conducting these mass shootings. So to start this hour, we're going to get the facts versus fiction on mental illness and violence in America at a moment when those words, mental illness, are being thrust to the forefront of a grieving nation's national conversation. Joining me now is Jonathan Metzl, the director of Vanderbilt University's Center for Medicine, Health, and Society. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. 
And on the line is Dominic Sisti, director of the Scattergood Program for Applied Ethics in Behavioral Health Care at the University of Pennsylvania. Dominic, welcome. Thank you. So, Jonathan, let's start with you. Is there any correlation between violence and mental illness? Well, let me first say that I can completely understand why people turn to a mental illness narrative after mass shooting. It's such a traumatic moment. On an emotional level, I think this narrative makes sense. But on a political and policy level, it is a complete distraction. Unfortunately, data, study after study shows that persons diagnosed with serious major mental illness are, in fact, much more likely to be the victims of violence, not the perpetrators of violence. And if you just go down the list, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, all the major psychiatric diagnoses, these are all mental illnesses that end up taking people away from society. So they're less likely to plan an attack, commit an attack, factors like that. Well, there's also the question, Jonathan, about the underlying issues for many of the shooters, not all, but many of the ones that we're learning about seems to be radicalization, hatred of women, of people of color. I'm wondering why so many politicians are conflating those issues with mental illness. Well, it's an easy talking point and it's a distraction. If you're talking about mental illness, you're not talking about much more difficult topics like race and racism. There's very often misogyny involved in these in these narratives. And also, we're not talking about gun laws. And so it's been a very useful talking point to not get us to talk about what we should be talking about, which is how can we come together across divides, gun owners and people who are you know responsible gun owners, people on all sides of this divide, people who feel strongly about gun control. How can we come together and create reasonable policy in the middle? But when we're talking about these large, lofty, charged narratives, it makes it harder for us to enact reasonable common sense solutions to the violence that we're all experiencing. Dominic, I'd like to bring you in here because in the president's statement, he said that people with mental illness should be, quote, involuntarily confined in certain circumstances as a way to prevent mass shootings. What are the ethics of that proposal, Dominic? The ethics really turn on the empirical evidence that such action would not prevent mass shootings really at all. And so it would be largely unethical and I think impractical to be able to identify individuals who are at risk for such violence and attempt to involuntarily confine them in a psychiatric hospital. There is no evidence that it would work. And two, it would be impossible to predict who those individuals should be that should be confined. And I guess the other question is, where would these people be confined? I think we think about uh, mental health institutions that back in the 50s and 60s that existed in this country. But is there even an infrastructure at this point to to even carry out something like that? There are psychiatric hospitals and there are state laws that would mandate an individual who is a risk to themselves or others to be placed involuntarily in a psychiatric ward. The capacity for forensic use is there. The capacity for civil use to get people the care they need, the treatment they need in a psychiatric hospital is largely not there. The number of beds in this country has evaporated significantly since the 1970s, and we now have a dearth of psychiatric beds in this this country for people who are seriously mentally ill and who need structured inpatient care. It's not important to prevent mass shootings. Let me just say that up front. The idea of increasing our bed capacity. And that's, you know, that's sort of the metric that we use to describe how much inpatient care is available in this country for psychiatric problems is important because there are individuals with very serious mental illnesses who are not receiving the treatment they need in the community. 
And to that point, Jonathan, Congress and President Trump have talked a lot about uh, reforming mental health laws to address current and future violence. But what have they actually done towards that end? I mean, have they done anything to promote mental health awareness or treatment? As a psychiatrist, I'm all for more mental health treatment. I'm all for investing more in the mental health system. That's a different issue than preventing mass shootings entirely. But it is important to note that you know, I can list many instances from President Trump overturning President Obama's executive orders about eliminating firearms to people with very severe mental illness. Not that those people would come out shooting. They're just quite uh, debilitated. But President Trump overturned that a, a couple of years ago. Everything to things that aren't really getting talked about right now, like uh, attacking the Affordable Care Act. Well, the Affordable Care Act had a lot of language about mental illness parity. And so in a way, the actions that have been done by the Trump administration are really undermining mental mental illness treatment. Now, there is one other important point to keep in mind, which is President Trump also mentioned so-called red flag laws. Those are laws that try to kind of find a kind of narrow space between these large issues. Red flag laws are, allow for a temporary removal of a firearm from someone who may be an imminent threat to themselves or someone else just for a period of between 7 and 21 days. And that kind of uses the mental illness language, but it doesn't use the diagnosis, right? I think that's the important point. So there is a narrowed point of hope here, and we'll have to see what happens with that with that particular issue. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does. Does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. The president also mentioned red flag laws, and particularly GOP uh, leadership seems to be thinking that this is a, a good way to go. Can you explain what they are? Right. So a red flag law is essentially a state law. It's, it's important to understand that when the president and members of Congress say they support red flag laws, what they're saying is they support states adopting these laws. And what a red flag law does is it basically makes it possible typically for the relatives of someone to report them to the police and say, we are concerned about this person's mental state. We'd like you to take their weapons away from them while they seem to be going through problems. And it essentially makes it easier, an easier mechanism for a judge to say, okay, we're going to take this person's weapons away because their relatives have reported them as possibly a danger to themselves or others. That is what a red flag law does. And, and it, and the reason why Republicans are embracing this is because, you know, for Republicans, there's often a, a desire to look for anything 
other than gun control legislation in the wake of horrible attacks. So obviously Republicans talk a lot about mental illness. The president said in his public address that you know, mental illness and hate pulls the trigger, not the gun. And that is very much in keeping with the Republican perspective on these mass shootings and gun violence. And so when you talk about red flag laws, it's another way for Republicans to say, we're not going to look at guns. We are going to look at mental health and we are going to push those decisions down to the states because the reality is in a lot of states, uh, it would be fairly difficult to pass red flag laws. And you're basically pushing that responsibility down as opposed to up to Washington. A lot of times people who just study, you know, the sort of mainstream white supremacists, you know, they pay attention to the David Dukes of the in the KKK and then they pay attention to the new school of the white supremacists like Richard Spencer they miss a lot of right. the things that happened online outside of the public view that sort of connects it all and really, yeah. I, th- I think, moved it from the David Dukes to the Richard Spencers. And, right. and, and one of those things are this culture of incels and, you know, yes. uh, uh, people who are sort of angry that they're virgins, but they're pushing women away anyway. Sort of like right. the, the, the men going their own way, uh, yep. people. Uh, so let's talk about that part of Frederick Brennan's life really quick. Right. So Brennan really began in this. He was sort of the center also of this burgeoning incel culture, which had occurred first on 4chan and then, um, on a site, on a section of it called R9K Robot 9000, which was supposed to be a nice optimistic part, but it came full of people who were sad and alone. And then together they convinced themselves there was sort of this group think, uh, that they're like, Oh, well, if I'm sad and alone, I'll be that way forever. I'm doomed to be that way. I'm born into a society. And it was sort of like a social Darwinist idea, which is still very popular among the alt right. This idea that, Oh, we're beta males. We're, we're doomed to never get women and be on the bottom and always lose this sort of hierarchical competition. Um, so Brennan was started that on, was in that R9K world. Um, and then Moot, uh, thought it was so sad and depressing. He, he, he cut the board. He said it shouldn't exist on 4chan. Um, and at that point, Brennan and the group start new new chans. They start Wizard Chan, which is based on this Japanese joke that if you're over thirty, you become a wizard. Uh, if you're oh sorry, if you're over thirty and you're a virgin, you become a wizard. That's the joke. So Wizard Chan, he described to me, was even more toxic. It was even more of a group think. They got things got worse, and they said, oh, if you have one friend, then you're faking being a wizard. Um, uh, so it was just sort of. Uh, and eventually R9K was reinstated. It still exists now. Um, but Wizard Chan was also before even Gamergate uh, happened on 4chan and then moved to 8chan. Wizard Chan was already harassing the same game developer in 2013 before Gamergate really got started. So, I mean, to me, I argue in the article in the book, it's really like you mentioned there's the Richard Spencer kind of like armchair crank fake intellectual Nazis. And then there's the the traditional David Duke neo-Nazis. To me, there's this new set of disenfranchised, marginalized young men 
who, because of, for economic reasons, right, they're like, they've dropped out of life and they're sort of in this otaku lifestyle, which then deepens into an incel lifestyle. Um, and then between that economic idea that like, oh, they don't have any access to fulfilling jobs or, um, really good access to education or adequate housing, stuff that a lot of young people, a lot of people just have to deal with in the U.S. now, that combined with, like, it's so easy to just drop out and play video games all day. That's just, our culture makes it really easy to do that. Um, that ends up uh, pushing people into 4chan and 8chan and into these realms, uh, and then they cling on to far-right ideology as a way out. That's right. their, like, right? They think, oh, well, that'll be my way to bootstrap myself out. Right. Um, and Brennan was really at the center of that before Gamergate happened and then before HN happened. And we see it just sort of still happening that those forces are there. It's really kind of a new set of far right people. It's different than the David Duke set or the Richard Spencer set. So just this year, I guess to, to bring it full circle now, just this year, we've had three white supremacist shootings where the shooters were HN posters where they uh, posted uh, their intent beforehand, posted a manifesto beforehand that clearly uh, showcased their white supremacist ideology. I believe, um, I believe, I, I don't know if all three of them did, but I know two of them for sure: the Christchurch shooter and the El Paso Walmart shooter, uh, specifically espoused. The, uh, the, the great replacement white supremacist theory. Um, so did the, the synagogue Poway, the synagogue uh, Poway, the, the, the well. tree of life synagogue shooter as well. He was a literal copycat. He's just like, oh, uh, right, right, reason. right. Yeah. yeah I, I think I get him confused actually with that one that came. Like, this is sad that we're confused. I could even I know. say this, but I know there's with, so many with the one who did the, uh, the, the garlic festival shooting. That's yeah. That's just another art white uh, personality that uh, we don't have a Chan connection for. But uh, again, a social Darwinist young man fits the profile right, and he recommended these social Darwinist slash proto neo Nazi uh, right. literature. So right. yeah, I mean the list goes on. Like I I list eight, four, five in my article, and then six more, and then. You know, in my book, I list more, and it's like 1920, right? It's really an epidemic of far-right shooters. So when someone posts this stuff on HN, when they post their manifesto or their intent to shoot somebody, what is the reaction of the current-day HN community? I mean, they love it for the most part. They are exultant, right? Uh, they're either nihilistic or sort of deeply unhappy with themselves, you know? I mean, the way it, you, it's like it's like... I mean, how deeply miserable in your life do you have to be to celebrate that, right? Right. And it, so it's kind of clear how much their lives suck and how much they suck. Uh, but that's that's their reaction. That for the most part they're exultant. There's a few who are like, oh well, this isn't good for promoting far, our far right ideology. This isn't good for our goals. Right. And then a few people are like, oh no, Achan's going to get shut down because I spent all my time here, right? Like that's that's their reaction. Right. Not a human reaction. <clears throat> Right. And they, it seems like actually, I wouldn't be surprised if not only do, do, does like the rhetoric on there in general sort of push someone deeper into this, uh, uh, this hole where they end up, you know, doing, becoming 
what they become and, and, and go out and commit these horrible acts. But it wouldn't surprise me if the actual reaction to the shooting, the, the sort of gamification of it, where they sort of have this kill count where the more these shooters kill, the higher, uh, you know, on the totem pole they become. Like, you know, in yeah. many aspects, you know, you become a legend to these eight channers. Right. Based on how many more people you kill than yes. previous mass shooters. Yeah. I write about this in my book a lot. Um, you know, Republicans have been blaming video games and their scapegoating of them is obviously wrong. There is a component that is the video game component, um, which is <laughs> this idea that if you live your entire life behind a screen, uh, there's this sort of fantasy of stepping through the screen which is combined with what they consume as fantasy product as escapist fantasy products, which are male violent fantasies that are power fantasies, right? The power fantasies of action films, the power fantasies of video games. And these are all violent power fantasies, right? That are sold to young men. And why are they sold? Why are they so popular? Because obviously these men are powerless, right? It's an old trick, right? Old capitalist trick where you sell the power fantasy to the powerless. Um, so this idea that they replicate that, that they replicate doom, the video games, the action films, and they love it. And they're like, oh, I'm so miserable. And I've been spending my entire life consuming male power fantasies because I'm powerless. Well, why don't I just kill myself by reenacting it? Right? Like it's incredibly screwed up, but this is where we are. White supremacy. Everybody knows that's not true. They all know it. I mean, white people know that they are not genetically superior. That they aren't racially or genetically superior to anybody. They know it. But they've enjoyed white privilege because of the foundation that they laid of white supremacy. So they've enjoyed, you know, a, a disproportionate amount of power, control, wealth, privilege. A disproportionate amount of it. And, they, and they've had it for hundreds and hundreds of years. All over the globe. South Africa, India, Australia, Asia, Europe, <laughs> North and South America. They've enjoyed this privilege. And in fact, you, you go to places like, like Brazil. doesn't matter what percentage of the Brazilian population are people of color, are brown or black. Their parliament still mostly white. So they've enjoyed this privilege, but they know it's not going to last. So this trajectory of, of white supremacy to white privilege, the next step is white fragility. It's fear. This guy doesn't go down to El Paso and, and shoot a bunch of women and children because he's brave. He's, he's scared. All these people on the right, that's what they're, they're scared. They know they're not superior, but they do know that there's going to be some payment due. There's some payback coming for all of the oppression, for all of the injustices that white people, years of lynching people, years of, of rape, the rape culture, 
missing and murdered indigenous women that we're still experiencing today. The disproportionate um, justice, I mean, the, the disparity in justice and in income, in quality of life, that is policy-driven. It's not going to last forever. And not, and not just because places like Texas have, are, are finally have more uh, uh, Hispanic uh, uh, population than white population. Not just because of the, the population shift, but because we are becoming empowered. Look, Native people, not counting the indigenous people who claim to be Hispanic, Latina, Latinx, or Chicano, whatever. But people who identify themselves as Native people, I don't want to say Native Americans or Indians, but the people who identify themselves, we still will never represent a big a big number. But you know what we do represent? Trouble. We represent trouble because we're willing to fight for our lands. We're willing to fight for, um, for their environment. And the reason we're willing to fight for the lands and the environment is because we're willing to fight for our future generations. Not just our children, not just our grandchildren. We're, we're willing to fight for those spaces we will never see. The seven generations, eight generations, nine generations. We're willing to fight for, for justice. And not just for our children. Not just for the, the, the human beings that we'll never see. But for the rest of creation, we're willing to fight for that. We understand the relationship between creation, something white people have never understood. They've always looked at, at the world. I mean, their Bible, their, their Genesis says, subdue the earth and all the creatures. That's what the Bible says. I don't, I mean, at least that's the way King James had it translated. So they believe everything on this planet is for them. And when I say for them, I mean, I mean, yeah, for white people, white Christians. But, it, but that is for man. That all of the animals, all of the rest of creation, the only reason it's there is to serve man. And specifically to serve white men. That's why they, they could justify slavery. I mean, look. They could put words in, in their in their documents like all men are created equal and endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They could say those things and nev- never mean it because it was about them. So when we talk about white supremacy now, we aren't really talking about white supremacy. Look, that's what they claim. See, that's what a white supremacist claims. They They keep saying that they... That they're entitled. But the reality is they're scared. They're, they're cowards. If you walk into a McDonald's with a, with an AR-15 or an AK-47 over your shoulder, that's not because you're brave. It's because you're chicken shit. If you can abuse a woman or a child, if you if you adopted the rape culture, it's not because you're brave. It's because you're a coward. And you're searching for somebody that you can use your superior strength or not necessarily strength, power. You know you can you can shoot a Mexican because you won't be prosecuted for it. Because the system is catering to you. You know you can lynch a black man because you're not going to get 
You're not going to get charged with it. You know you can, you can kidnap and murder a, a native woman because nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to care what you do to somebody of color. But we're all fighting back. Black lives matter. Idle no more. We're fighting back. We need to restore balance. And unfortunately, when you've had such an imbalance, a disproportionate imbalance that has favored one group of people, not even necessarily the majority, because white people were not the majority or are not the majority. I mean, in the United States, they might be. But globally, nah. And they certainly were in, in Africa. And they reigned with brutal oppression as a minority over, over black people in their own homelands. And they did it in India. They did it, did it in Australia. They did it everywhere. Asia, everywhere. Now, as white people slowly slip from the majority in the United States, they're still going to be overwhelmingly the largest group of people. Uh, If you're going to break people down by race, I guess, or by skin color. But that fear that somehow a state like Texas might go from red to blue. I mean, the fear that white people had when Barack Obama got elected, I mean, I'm not, I'm not even going to weigh in on his presidency, but just the mere color of his skin and the color of his wife's skin and his children's skin, that scared the crap out of white people. That's why the Tea Party um, developed. And as a response, that's why these whites, these militias and white supremacy groups, that's why they came, they, they grew, they doubled, tripled, quadrupled. The biggest threat to, to, to American people is domestic terrorism. Not fundamentalist, you know, uh, you know, Islamic fundamentalists? Christian fundamentalists. That's the biggest fear. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, laying out the details of the shootings and the ties to Trump's white supremacy. In the Thick spoke with Bob Moore about the effects of the shootings in El Paso. The Bradcast broke down some of the Republican responses to the shootings. The Takeaway dove into some suggestions for Democrats on policies they should be pushing for. All In with Chris Hayes explained the connection to right-wing media and white supremacy with the push for ever more militarized responses to shootings. The Takeaway explored the wrong-headedness of targeting mental illness in response to shootings, as well as explaining the red flag laws now being pushed by both parties as a way to basically pass the buck down to the states. 
Doomed with Matt Bender explained the dark corners of the web that are fertile ground for disaffected white guys to radicalize each other. And finally, we just heard Let's Talk Native explain the fear that is at the heart of the ideology of white supremacy. Members this week will hear some more from the softer side of these stories, stories of El Paso's resilience in the face of trauma and stories of the psychological toll we all pay to live in a society beset by domestic terrorism with a government that refuses to react. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. Now, uh, as I said at the beginning, I let the show uh, run a little long today, so we're um, foregoing voicemails, and I just have a little bit to add because I want to leave you on a high note. Our, you know, effectively our activism segment for today is, is it's one of those uh, reminders there's a glimmer of hope that not absolutely everything is completely terrible all of the time. And so uh, I'll just mention that there was a, a hot minute when I guess Donald Trump seemed to be in favor of expanding background checks. Of course, it didn't take long, maybe a couple of calls from uh, the NRA. And he changed his mind on that. But every poll shows that Americans across the political spectrum want change and they are taking action. For instance, last weekend, local moms demand action chapters held over 100 recess rallies across the country demanding universal background checks and enforced so-called red flag laws from their members of Congress. You can text the word CHECKS to 64433 via Every Town for Gun Safety to tell your senators you demand action on H.R. 8, the expanded background checks bill. McConnell, of course, has refused to bring the bill to a vote on the Senate floor, but it has already passed the House back in February. Uh, to keep the gun violence conversation in our political spotlight, the Giffords Group is partnering with the youth-led March for Our Lives to host a presidential forum on gun violence on October 2nd in Las Vegas, the second anniversary of the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. So far, O'Rourke, Warren, Klobuchar, Yang, Castro, Harris, Inslee, and Booker have said that they'll attend, and the organizations are encouraging people to write to the other candidates to urge them to RSVP. But of course, as we know, our gun violence problem and our white supremacist problem are linked. So this week, the Leadership Conference on Human and Civil Rights, Latino Victory Fund, and the Giffords Group will be kicking off a multi-stop town hall tour across Texas on August 22nd called Yabasta, Latinos Rise Against Gun Violence and Hate. And the first stop will be fittingly in El Paso. And finally, one last thing, students who grew up practicing active shooter drills in school are especially concerned about mass shootings. And combine that with the larger effort to increase voter turnout among youth, and it is clear why the first ever high school voter registration week happening September 23rd through 27th is critical. Students are encouraged to host voter drive events in their schools, so if you have teens or if you are one, visit hsvoterregweek.org to learn more. So like I said, not everything is terrible all of the time, and this movement is continuing to gain steam, so join it now by tapping into one of these great organizations and getting involved in whatever way makes sense to you. And with that, we will wrap up. 
I just have one quick reminder that Babbel is supporting today's episode. They are the language learning app designed to get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. Babbel's interactive lessons are created by over 100 language experts in 14 languages, and the lessons last only 10 to 15 minutes. Go to babbel.com or download the app, select the language of your choice, and try it for free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Now, as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.